In the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee lies a first century fishing village by the name of Capernaum. Folks, do you see that old church with the red roof right behind me? That church is in the archaeological park that contains the ancient ruins of the town of Capernaum. Capernaum has the amazing privilege of being able to say that they were the hometown of Jesus. That's right, Jesus lived right there. He lived right there during the three years of his public ministry. In fact, Capernaum saw more of Jesus' miracles than any other place, more of his teaching than any other place. Capernaum was the headquarters of Jesus' ministry. Capernaum, it is the cradle of Christianity. It says in Matthew chapter 4, verse 13, After leaving Nazareth, Jesus went and lived in Capernaum, which is by the Sea of Galilee. Can you imagine with me what it must have been like when that verse took place? What was it like the day Jesus moved to Capernaum? The day he took his first steps into his new hometown? Imagine with me that first day that Jesus strolled the streets of Capernaum, checking out his new neighbors, looking at their homes, introducing himself. Very soon, the news of his arrival would have spread throughout town. That news was big news. Capernaum was a small town of only a thousand people. And so when a new teacher arrived, it was the talk of the town. People looking at him, trying to figure him out. Jesus was a stranger, a man of mystery. But that began to change. As Jesus met and interacted with the various people of this town, his identity started to be revealed. Jesus first, he met a fisherman. And then Jesus met a social outcast. He he met a, a tax collector. He met a military officer, a mother in law. And with each interaction, his heart became more apparent. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to our our new series called The Stranger. And I I am extremely excited about this opportunity. This this city called Capernaum is my favorite place on planet Earth. And I know that's a strong statement, but I really feel that way. My wife and I, uh, it was, I think, five years ago, had the privilege of going to Israel. And it was just the two of us celebrating her 40th birthday. We uh, rented a car, and we were just kind of on our own, cruising around. And we ended up at the Sea of Galilee at Capernaum. This, uh, this picture is actually a photo of the remains of the ancient synagogue at Capernaum. And Jen and I were just thrilled to get there. We, we were there in the off-season, and so the place was just empty. We were the only two people in the archaeological park And at one point, we walked down to the Sea of Galilee, and we stood there on the shore. And my wife, you know, just brought it to life. She said, Jeff, do you realize Jesus Christ walked these shorelines nearly every day during the three years he lived here? 
Do you realize he would swim to, on hot days to take a cool dip in the, the sea right here? And the minute Jen said that, something spontaneous took over in me. Fully clothed, I like took off and dove into the lake and just started doing a backstroke, swimming and splashing around. And Jen's like, are you okay? You know? And I'm like, yeah. Well, why did I do that? There's this longing in me, and maybe you would have done the same thing, this longing in me to connect with Jesus Christ any way possible. He is becoming increasingly the love of my life. And if there is a way that the life of Christ can meet the life of Jeff Griffin, I want it to meet in every way possible. I long to know him, to be with him, to be near him. And to be where he lived was wonderful. To swim where he swam seemed like a logical next step. And that's what this series is really about. This series is a longing to know this Christ. Because he remains a stranger to all of us to a degree. He can be better known. And so we're going to pursue knowing him better. It's real fun. This series is going to be an exploration of five encounters Jesus had with five citizens or residents of the town of Capernaum. And each of those encounters reveal the heart of Christ even more. And knowing the heart of Christ is knowing the heart of God. Do you remember? Uh, Not only is Jesus God in human flesh, but Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you want to understand what the king of the universe is like, He blessed us by coming to planet Earth, walking among us in human flesh, so as to reveal, to save our souls on the cross, but also to reveal his nature to us. So in this series, we're begging God, God, show me your glory. Help us understand you. The town of Capernaum, a uh, real special place. Uh, it's, it's the archaeological history is an interesting one. So it survived for some centuries after Jesus lived, but then it was destroyed and forgotten. You say, how can it be forgotten with these pillars and walls? Truthfully, they were knocked down, and uh, they've been reassembled as best they can by the archaeologists. But there was a point where Capernaum was lost for over a thousand years. The rubble was covered with weeds and debris and dirt, and eventually it was just a forgotten, not forgotten as in the Bible. We knew it existed, but we didn't know where it was. And wouldn't you know, it was an American, a guy from New York City. Uh, His name was Edward Robinson. Way back, 1838, he was a Bible prof with the heart of an adventurer. And Robinson said, we got to find these places. It's ridiculous that we've lost the knowledge of where these special places Christ lived and went were. And so he took off, and he went to Israel and started searching. And it was Edward Robinson that discovered Capernaum. And it has been systematically excavated ever since. And what they've discovered is really like going in a time machine, you know, to go back in time and to unearth the city that Jesus lived in. And folks, they found the synagogue Jesus preached in, as it's explained in Mark 1. They found the house Jesus lived in. And you're like, come on, they didn't find the house he lived in. 
I understand your skepticism. That was my initial reaction as well. But when later in the series we look into the evidence, your confidence will uh, be there as well. And so this is a, a really neat town. And I'm excited to be able to study what Jesus did and who he met in that place. Who are we going to start off with? Who's the first person Jesus met? A fisherman. There was a fisherman from Capernaum by the name of Peter. You know Peter well, don't you? Simon Peter. In fact, our passage today is going to refer to him as Simon more times than Peter. But Simon was his original given name. Jesus called him the Rock or Peter. And so the Bible kind of goes back and forth between both of his names. And you know, to say that Jesus met Peter in Capernaum is not accurate. Actually, the reason Jesus came to Capernaum was probably because of the invitation of Peter. They had met up north on the Jordan River near Jerusalem where Jesus was baptizing and where John the Baptist had some followers. In fact, Peter's brother Andrew was one of John the Baptist's followers. And when Andrew met Jesus, he ran and he got Peter and he said, you've got to meet this guy. He's unbelievable. And so Jesus had met Peter elsewhere. And probably the reason that he came to Capernaum was because of the invitation of Peter. You've got to come to my hometown. You must stay with me. I want you to meet my people. And so Jesus came and made his headquarters in the town of Capernaum. And now let's discover on this day, this unbelievably important day, Peter realized that this one he had invited, this Jesus, was way more than Peter ever dreamed Jesus was. So I'm I'm starting here in Luke chapter 5, verse 1. Luke 5, verse 1, it says, One day, as Jesus was preaching on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, great crowds pressed in on him to listen to the word of God. That pressed in on him is representing a problem. Their eagerness to hear him was so great and the crowd so large that quite literally he's being backed up to where he has no space to stand. Next verse. Jesus noticed two empty boats at the water's edge, for the fishermen had left them and were washing their nets. Stepping into one of the boats, Jesus asked Simon, again, that's Peter, its owner, he said, Peter, push out into the water. And so he sat in the boat and taught the crowds from there. I love this picture. I've stood on the shore. Jesus off the shore a little bit in the boat with Peter, you know, arms crossed. And the, the, the crowd was sufficiently distanced from Jesus where he could preach and not be uh, blocked. What a, and Jesus was a creative problem solver. I love that. And he came up with a solution that worked. Well, after his sermon was over, verse 4, it says, When Jesus had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Now go out where it's deeper. Let's let down your nets one more time to catch some fish. Master, Simon replied. He's got an attitude here, so I'm going to give him attitude as I read it. Master, Simon replied. Listen, we worked hard all night, and we didn't catch a thing. Peter's saying essentially, listen, I know when to catch fish. It's at night, and trust me, it didn't work. We didn't catch anything. They're, they're just not, it's not a good day. He adds, But if you say so, sounds like one of my kids. But if you say so, I'll let down the nets again. And this time, their nets were so full of fish that they began to tear. A shout for help brought their partners in the other boat. And soon both boats 
Can you imagine? Four guys in two boats pulling on these nets, hauling fish after fish after fish, loads of fish. It says both boats were filled with fish and on the verge of sinking. Folks, this is a miraculous catch. And then look at verse 8. This is the verse that I was so moved by, and I hope you are as well. When Simon Peter realized what had happened, he fell to his knees before Jesus, and he said, Oh, Lord, you got to leave me. I am too much of a sinner to even be around you. Wow. So what's going on there? When Peter realized what had happened, that's kind of an interesting statement. What do you mean he didn't realize what had happened? Of course he realized what had No, he didn't realize the implications of what had happened until he had gotten the fish into the boat. For a time there, he was so caught up with the catch, he was just like, guys, keep pulling them in. Keep pulling them in. Woo-hoo! You know, and they're so focused on this catch. But when it was finally done, there was the moment. <laughs> That's right. Got a preacher in the making over there. When he was finally done, he looked at Jesus, and that's the moment, you know, an epiphany. You know what an epiphany is? That sudden clarity, sudden realization. He, He looked away from this boat full of fish. He looked at Jesus, and he said, Oh, my, I thought I knew you, but I just realized I didn't have a clue the extraordinary nature of your identity. I really believe that in that moment, Peter realized he's not just the Messiah. He's not just the greatest rabbi and teacher I've ever experienced. I think Peter caught a glimpse of the divine nature in Christ in that moment. And it's revealed by him falling before him and just saying, away from me. I am a sinner and you are holy, holy, holy. Do you see that? Folks, this is a moment of of realization. Again, Peter understood the greatness of Christ better than anybody in the town of Capernaum. But on that day, he discovered Jesus was so much more than he had ever imagined. And I would venture to say the same is true for you. If I were to say, what do you know about Jesus Christ? And what do you know about God as revealed to us through Christ? I think we'd all want to boast and say, I know quite a bit. And I think the truth is we know a fraction of the true stunning glory of our Lord. Do you want an epiphany? Do you want moments of realization of going, wow, Lord, you are so much more than I ever imagined. Folks, I I want to make a statement that Admittedly, sounds extreme, but then I'm going to defend it. I think the greatest thing we can do for our spiritual lives is to see God more accurately. I think the greatest thing we can do for our lives in general, if you want your life to explode with spiritual vitality and joy eternal, get to see God for who he really is. Peter discovered on that day that that changes everything. I'll defend that statement with some quotes from another Chicago pastor who died over 50 years ago. His name was A.W. Tozer. 
one of my favorite authors. Tozer wrote a book called The Knowledge of the Holy. And let, let me read to you a, a few quotes. In fact, this is the very first line of the book, The Knowledge of the Holy. Tozer said, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And you say, Really? Tozer believed that if you have a low view of God, you're going to have a low life. If you have a high view of God, if your idea or perception of God even comes anywhere near to what he's really like, that understanding of God is going to propel your life in extraordinary directions. Tozer said in the first chapter of the Knowledge of the Holy, he said, were we able to extract from any person a complete answer to this question? Here's the question. What comes to mind when you think about God? He says, were we to get that answer, we might predict with certainty the spiritual future of that person. I think that's right. Folks, one of the the greatest problems in our lives is that we don't know what God is really like. If we did, we would be able to predict a glorious future for our spiritual lives because that vision of his glory would compel us in a love-fueled, passionate spiritual life. Tozer said, The heaviest obligation lying upon the Christian church today is to purify and elevate her concept of God until it is once more worthy of him. Amen. One of my great passions for us as a church and the objective of this series in particular is that the Lord would go from not being a stranger to increasingly being the one we know best of all and that our knowledge of him would change us for all eternity. Shall we go for it? All right, so what's going on here? In this passage, you may may say, I don't know, uh, why, why... Is Tozer, why are you, why is the Bible seeming to imply that this epiphany, this realization of who God is as revealed through Christ, why is that so important and so life-changing? I think the passage begins to help us understand that a bit. So I'd like to go back to verse 8 and look at it again. It says, when Simon Peter realized what had just happened and what that said of Jesus, it says, he fell on his knees before Christ and said, Oh, Lord, please leave me. I'm too much of a sinner to be around you. The statement I'd like to make, you know, he said, I'm a sinner. Seeing who Jesus was helped him see who he was. And so let me put it this way. Um, See Jesus more accurately. See yourself more accurately. One of the great implications of our knowledge of God will be our knowledge of ourselves. Peter says, I didn't, you know, I was boasting. He went from a posture of boasting. You don't know anything about fishing. Don't tell me to cast out the net. I know fishing. We didn't catch anything. To now he's bowing before him and saying, I am a sinner. Why this shift of arrogance to absolute conviction of his moral depravity? Well, it's this realization through this miracle and Admittedly, this was speaking Peter's language. Miraculous catch of fish, that was Peter's love language. Maybe it wouldn't have moved you as powerful. But there is no better way to reveal the divinity, the the glory, the holiness of Jesus to Peter than through a miraculous catch of fish. That suddenly opened the eyes of this fisherman. 
And when he saw the holiness of Jesus, the divinity of Jesus, in contrast, he suddenly felt naked and ashamed of his sinful state. And folks, that'll happen. I'll just warn you. The more you know Jesus, the more you will know how sinful you are. The reason for that is we normally compare ourselves morally to others, right? Other people. We kind of grade on a curve and assume God does the same. We say, you know, I'm not perfect, but compared to my neighbor, oh my. Compared to these people I live with, I think I stand out pretty well. Compared to my coworkers, I mean, I got to give myself a little credit. And compared to others, we celebrate that we're decent. Compare yourself to Jesus Christ, the epitome of holiness and greatness of life, and suddenly we look very different. Every single exchange and conversation we have, Christ would have handled better. Every single moment that tests our moral fiber, Christ would have risen up with a greater response. And in comparison to Jesus, who is to be our baseline of what righteousness looks like, we come away just saying, I am a wretched sinner. Some of you are saying, this is a terrible sermon. You're making me feel awful. I hate this. Well, maybe you say, I don't want to know God if knowing him is going to make me feel bad about myself. That's the beginning of our self-discovery journey. And that's the beginning for Peter as well. Peter's saying, get away from me, Jesus. I shouldn't be in your presence. I am such a sinner. But how does Christ respond? Verse 10, Jesus replied to, to Simon, Peter, you don't have to be afraid. Don't be afraid. Peter, from now on, you will be fishing for people. Peter is trembling, saying, this is not right for sinfulness to be in the presence of holiness. And he's fearing. And Jesus says, you don't have to be afraid. It's not wrong for me to be with you. Now, is Jesus saying, you're really not a sinner, Peter. You got yourself all wrong, you know? No, no, Jesus isn't disagreeing with him on that point. But he is saying, though you are a sinner, it's right for me to be with you. This is grace. You don't have reason to fear, Peter. I love you. I want to be near you. I've got a great vision for your life. Though a sinner, yes, you are also going to be a world changer, a fisher of men, No longer will you be devoted simply to the accumulation of more money through your fishing business. You will become an ambassador of Almighty God, helping people far from God come into his family and discover eternal life through Christ. And this is a strange tension. But we discover two things about the Lord in this passage. One, his holiness that makes us aware of our sin but also his grace that makes us aware of how privileged we are in his eyes. We we discover about ourselves that we are cherished sinners, that we are sinners forgiven by the cross of Christ and adopted into God's family and made princes and princesses of his eternal kingdom, called to lives of stellar significance as we are his ambassadors to this world, used by him to mark eternity. It's an awkward tension 
but that's the wonder of our identity being formed in who we are in the eyes of God. The more we see who God is, the more we'll see ourselves accurately, that we are cherished, beloved, forgiven sinners. You know, I, 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 uh, I'll just give an example from my own life this week of how this knowledge of God growing in me is helping me understand myself, shall I? I, I'm reading a book these days, and this is a bit embarrassing for me to even confess to you, because as I hold it up, you're going to say, that looks like a Harlequin romance novel to me. It does to me too, and that bothers me greatly, and it's not, just for the record, okay? Let's make that clear. This is an, uh, it is a fiction. It's called The Curate's Awakening by George MacDonald. George MacDonald was a pastor over in Scotland back in the mid-1800s, all right? And so it would be a fair question for you to say, why are you reading an old book by a Scottish pastor that's fiction about, called The Curate's Awakening? You know, you're threatening your masculinity, Jeff, by reading this book. Here, here's why, I'll tell you. I have found, George MacDonald, first of all, was pointed by C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien as major influences in their spiritual life. And that's how I was put on to him. And George MacDonald, one reason I'm reading this book, he describes God in a way I need to understand God. George MacDonald has a way of looking at the scriptures and understanding a deeper picture of the heart of God beyond my own understanding of God. And when I read MacDonald, I know God better. In fact, this week, I, I got to a description in here where uh, George MacDonald says, through one of the characters of the book, he says, our God has the uncanny capacity to be absolutely disgusted with our sin at the same time that he is absolutely delighting in us. And I said, oh my, that is good. That is good. That is true as I reflect on what scriptures teach, even in this passage we're looking at. That's right. Though we normally only feel one emotion at a time, God can simultaneously be disgusted with our sin and cherishing and in love with us. And that deeper understanding of the nature of God was very helpful for me as this was a good week of sin in my life. Uh, I, I'll, I'll just tell you, there are a number of occasions uh, where I was just, whew. One of them was a, you know, say, do you sin at church? Uh, yeah. We had a meeting here at church where I lost my temper. Uh, and you, you, if you had been there, you probably would have said, oh, Jeff, you're being hard on yourself. You weren't that bad. You're right. On the outside, I wasn't that bad. But if you could see what I was saying in my mind, you'd say, you were pretty bad, actually. Yeah, yeah I would agree with that. And as I walked out of that meeting and reflected on my collapse, I, 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 I approached the Lord. And I, I need to know, God, how do you feel about me right now? How should I feel as I turn to you in prayer? And I applied my new understanding that in that very moment, God was disgusted with my sin and said, Jeff Griffin, these people are precious to me and your thoughts and words do not honor them. And at the exact same time, God was saying, but you are my son and I adore you. Folks, if we want to understand ourselves, 
We got to understand God. Let me make one more observation. In the next verse, the last verse we'll be looking at together, it says this, verse 11. As soon as they landed the boat, that is, so as soon as after catching this fish, after Peter bowed, after Jesus said what he said, they, they pulled up on the shore. It says they left everything and followed Jesus. What happened in this moment? Uh, I'll say it this way. When we see Jesus more accurately, we see when, you see, when you see Jesus more accurately, you see yourself more accurately, and you see life more accurately. You see life more accurately. Uh, these disciples, as, as they are on the shore now, it's Peter and Andrew and a couple others, they suddenly realize, you know what? Forget the fishing business. Uh, this is not saying that secular employment is wrong. This is a heart change more than anything else. Uh, when you're doing your job for Jesus, it is sacred and glorious. But in this moment, the disciples of, of Jesus are holding their fishing nets. And they, it says in that passage that they left everything and followed him. The pa- passage in Matthew actually says that they dropped their nets. So in this moment... Peter's looking at Jesus and saying, I was all excited about having you visit. I was all excited about hearing you teach. I was all jazzed about you being the best rabbi, about you being maybe even the Messiah. I now realize you are the great I am. I now realize you are the most glorious being this planet has ever seen. I now realize you are the point of life. You are the hope of the world. You are the greatest love of this young heart. And when you say you invite me to follow you and become a fisher of men, Peter said, my whole life I've been preoccupied with business, making money by catching more fish. Suddenly I have a new reason to live. And Peter stared into the eyes of Jesus Christ. And he said, I I understand who I am more. I understand the point of life is not living for me. It's living for you. And in that moment, Peter dropped his nets and he followed Christ. And his life was for a new reason from that moment on. That's what happens to us. When we discover more and more the glory of Almighty God, our petty obsession with our own self-centered lives seem foolish. We are in love increasingly and mesmerized by the glory of our king. And we say, I don't want to be self-preoccupied. I want to be God-preoccupied. You have won my heart. And if you will allow me to live for you, it would be the greatest honor and delight I could imagine. And suddenly life looks different. Knowing God changes everything you understand who he is, it'll change the way you see yourself. It'll change the way you see life. It'll change everything. Peter realized that on this day. I wanted to end with uh, kind of an analogy, if you will. It's a little personal as far as it reflects my family, but I think it makes the point well. I, uh, I have a, or had a, great-grandfather by the name of Ingvald, my mother's mother's father, Ingvald Hansen, a good Norwegian guy, and he died shortly after I was born. So though I met him, I have no memory. Obviously, I was a baby. All I knew of him was his name, Ingvald. 
And I must confess that I developed a perception of him that was not favorable. I imagined him to be a very crusty, ornery old son of a gun. Involved! Doesn't it sound terrifying, you know? I, I was glad he was dead by the time I came around. You know? And then I was flipping through family photos one day. My mom had a box of them, and I, I came across one that caught my eye. And I said, Mom, who is this? She said, that's Ingvald. Here's the picture that I came across. I said, Mom, that's not Ingvald. <laughs> and she says, no, that's Ingvald. What do you mean? She, I go, that's just not how I pictured him to be. He looks... Kind. I started studying the picture, and I said, I just see a kindness in his eyes. And my mom says, oh, Jeff, of course, he was the most loving and gentle, kind man I have ever known. Ingvald? <laughs> She's, I, I noticed his hands looking strong, and I asked her about that. She said, yeah, he was a carpenter. He was a craftsman, an artist by nature. He loved woodworking and building cabinetry that delighted owners and pleased the eye. And I, I'm like, Mom, I love woodworking. And she goes, I know. I've always thought you get that creative passion from your great-grandfather. Ingvald? <laughs> I go, what's up with the hat? I go, that's not a uh, carpenter's hat. And my mom said, oh, this is really fun, Jeff. She said, after he retired from carpentry as a career... He grew bored at home, and he had a buddy who owned a little bank in downtown Chicago, and he actually asked if he could be a parking attendant. My mom says, I don't even think he ever got paid. He just loved to serve people. He would go to the bank in his little parking attendant outfit, and he would open the car door and let people out, and open the bank door and let them in. And on rainy days, he held an umbrella and walked them. He honored, he served, he treasured people. And the more I studied and the more I learned, the more I realized how wrong was I in my perception of this man. Could it be that Ingvald was far more wonderful than my wildest dreams? Yeah. Could it be that God is far more wonderful than your wildest dreams? Yeah. And just as I studied this picture and asked questions and talked to those who knew him and grew in my understanding of Ingvald, so if we study the word of God and ask questions of those who know him and are observant as we look around at the world that he's made, we can learn and learn and learn and grow in our understanding and purify our perception of God and chase away those false perceptions and replace them with the glorious perception of what he's really like. And this growing understanding of what God is like will transform and change our lives forever. So let's go for it. Let's go with passion and tenacity in pursuit of the face of God. Let's say, God, you're greater than I ever thought you were. I know that to be the case. Show me your glory. Help me in the world around see your greatness. Let it capture my heart. Let me be marked, mesmerized, obsessed 
by the glory, the beauty of my God. Let's pray together towards that end, shall we? Lord, forgive us for our low thoughts of you. Forgive us for the insulting perceptions of you that have drifted through our brains all too often. Would you show us your glory? Would you help us to be lifelong students of your word in hot pursuit and passion and pursuit through books, through conversations, through observations, every day hoping to catch a richer, deeper, truer glimpse of who you are. And God, we pray that that deeper understanding of you will forever be the source of inspiration that compels us into an extraordinary life devoted to your cause. You are great. You are awesome. We know that in part today. We'll know that in full someday in heaven. But we want to see it. And we want to celebrate you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.